The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Andrew Martin, I'm the youth pastor here at Christ the King, and it's my privilege uh, to welcome you all here this morning. And if you're a guest or a visitor, uh, you are joining us in the middle of Advent season. Advent is the time of year when we celebrate the first coming of our Savior Jesus, and as we look forward to his promised glorious second return as well. And this year, we have gone through the season of Advent uh, using a series of sermons from the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. We're going to continue that this morning in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 10. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to turn to Isaiah 42. And that passage will also be displayed on the overhead screens as well. And as you you turn to this passage, I just want to remind us uh, that these prophecies, I want to highlight how these prophecies are promises to us from God. The prophecies we've been looking at during Advent are promises concerning the Savior that God was going to send to redeem and to rescue his people. And so with this in mind, let's now read the word of the Lord together. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Behold, my servant, who I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth, You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving these promises to your people that, though written thousands of years ago, still ring true for us today. And we pray that we would see you more clearly together this morning. And that it would lead us to live lives of praise and obedience and of sharing this good news with those around us. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I've always enjoyed uh, going to movies or to plays. I've always enjoyed going to athletic events or the circus. And in all of these settings, these storytellers and these entertainers are often masters of capturing our attention, of of focusing us on a particular character or event. And this can happen in all kinds of different ways. If you go to a movie, you'll often notice that the camera will do a a close-up on a particular character. Or they may film a a scene in slow motion so that they can home in on a particular event. If you've ever attended a play or the circus, you might notice that a spotlight is often cast center stage on a soloist so that we can watch their performance. 
or may direct our attention high overhead as an acrobat soars through the air and the spotlight leads us to follow along as they chart their course. And if you've ever attended a sporting event, you've probably had your, your attention drawn to the starting lineup, what the players, what their names were, who they were going to be as the announcer said their names and told you that they would be playing quarterback or shortstop or maybe displayed those names on the screen for you to see. They do this to capture our attention, to draw our focus. And the Lord is actually doing a very similar thing for us this morning in this passage. He does this in verse 1 where he says, Behold. Behold is the very first word in our passage. And it's a word that we don't use very often unless you're one of my kids who will walk around and be like, Behold. You know, they actually do that when they were little. It's pretty funny. Um, they'll say, Behold me. And I know, oh, hey, take a look. I want you to see something. And we say things like this all the time as well. We'll say, wow, that was quite a sight to behold. We mean that was, that was really something incredible to see. And when the Lord uses this in chapter, in verse 1, he is using this word like a spotlight to catch our attention. He's using it to focus our attention on a particular person. And we see it in verse 1. He says, behold, my servant. In Isaiah 42, the Lord wants for us to see his servant. And as the passage unfolds, it becomes very clear that like an announcer who uh, tells you what position an athlete is going to play, the Lord is calling us to behold his servant so that we can see what his servant is going to accomplish, what his role in this world is going to be. And in verses 1 to 4, God helps us to see he is sending his servant to establish justice. In verse 1, he says, he will bring forth justice. At the end of verse 3, he says, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And at the beginning of verse 4, he says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice. Now, you said this word over and over again, but, but what does the Lord mean by justice in this particular context? What does it look like? Now, when we hear this word justice, many of our minds may go to judicial matters. We may even imagine the, the sound of a gavel slamming down as a judge pronounces someone innocent or guilty. But the Christian teacher, John Calvin, he helps us to understand that in this context, in this passage, justice actually has a much broader scope. When Calvin describes this word here, he uses words like command or rule. It brings to mind a society that is well-governed, where all life can, can prosper and thrive. One commentator describes Isaiah's sense of justice in this passage using the following description. He says, justice here is that life-giving order which exists when the creation is functioning in accordance with the design of its Lord. Did you hear those phrases? Life-giving order. The design of its Lord. Justice here is a God-given environment where all things thrive and prosper, and they thrive and prosper because they are living in accordance with the loving law and will of God. They flourish because they are living in obedience to the Lord and his commands. And it is this justice, this environment of obedience that the Lord is sending his servant to establish on the earth. And this is something that we actually need. We all need this because when we look at our lives, when we look at the world around us, we see that there is so much that is disordered and draining. And I imagine that for many of us, this reality is actually highlighted around the Christmas season. Some of us may dread driving our car and parking it in that driveway of a neighbor or friend and walking into that house on Christmas Eve or morning because we know that we're going to come face-to-face -face with relationships that are disordered, with, with relationships that are a far cry 
from life-giving. We know that in the midst of this broken reality here, God shows us that His servant will enter into the draining disorder. His servant will come into all the pain and all the chaos, and He's going to establish an order that is life-giving, where all things can flourish. But it's not only justice that the servant will establish. The Lord also wants us to see that his servant is humble and that his servant is gentle. This is what we see in verse 2. He says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. What he's saying is that this servant, when he appears, he appears quietly. He appears modestly with humility. We've all encountered those leaders or those people in power or celebrities who are arrogant, who are boastful, who just can't say enough about themselves. You know, you want to know how great they are? Just, just ask them. <laughs> They'd be happy to share. And we know what it's like to be around those people. It, it actually grates on us. But the Lord's servant, his just ruler, he is nothing like this. He's gentle. He's kind. He has, as one commentator says, he has style. He's the kind of person you would actually want to spend time with. But not only this, we see that this servant is also, he's also gentle. Look in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, being from Virginia, I've seen many reeds in my life. If you go down to the Chesapeake Bay or if you go down to the local river, you will often see these small uh, watering plants that grow along, uh, along the bay or along the riverside. And these reeds, they are, they're plants, but they're very fragile plants. They're easily cracked. They're easily bruised. And in the ancient world, you could take a reed and you could fashion it into a very simple instrument. You could use it as a writing utensil. But if that reed was bruised, if it was damaged, it was worthless. And you might as well break it in half and throw it away. But you see how the servant, when he sees a bruised reed, he does not go and finish the job by just snapping it in half and tossing it aside. No, the servant, he is gentle he handles it with great care. And this is also how he treats the faintly burning wick in an oil lamp. If he sees the wick sputtering and it's about to go out, kids, if you're not familiar with an oil lamp, just imagine a candle and the little wick, you know, as it, as it starts to burn down real low, it starts to, it starts to glimmer and it looks like, oh, I'm not going to make it much longer. Yep, now I'm out. That's what he's talking about here. But when Jesus, when, when this servant, when he sees this, this sputtering wick, he is gentle. He treats it with care. In the face of weakness and damage, he brings gentle support and strength. He brings healing and restoration. And the Lord, he wants us to see the servant's gentleness because we, we are all bruised reeds. We are all faintly burning wicks. Some of us are bruised, actually all of us are bruised and broken because of our sin. That is a reality that we all face. And many of us, if not all of us here today, we are also broken and bruised and hurting for things that have nothing to do with our sin. We may be damaged because others have sinned against us or because we struggle with some kind of weakness or, or ailment. And many of us probably wonder at times when we look at our sin, how could anyone want anything to do with me if they knew the things that I've done? Or we may look at our non-sinful struggles or weaknesses and wonder, will anyone want to stick with me? Will, they, will anyone want to tolerate me when I am so needy, when I need so much support? And so the good news that we see today, friends, is that the Lord's servant who brings justice 
this servant is also gentle. He patiently comes to bruise reeds and faint wicks, and he gives strength, he gives support, he gives healing. And that is why Advent, that is why Christmas is such a big deal for us as Christians. It is such a big deal for us because we know that Jesus, Jesus is the gentle servant, the just servant that we see in Isaiah 42. You may ask, well, how do we know that? There's actually quite a few clues that this passage gives us. But one of the clearest is if you look in the New Testament Gospel of Matthew and you go to chapter 12, Matthew quotes Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. And after he quotes that passage, he says, the man you see here, Jesus, he is the fulfillment of this promise. Jesus is the reason that Christmas is such an incredible celebration because the Lord's servant, our just and gentle Savior, has arrived. And when you believe in and belong to Jesus, listen, he never looks at you in your sin to then just snap you in half and throw you away in disgust. He never looks at you with your, when your faith feels like a burning wick that's about to sputter out and says, wow, what pitiful faith, and just snuffs you out. He never does that. He never looks at you when you are needy, when you are weak, when you are in need of support, only to smash you as a worthless object that just isn't worth his time. No, Jesus, Jesus is gentle. Jesus is patient. Jesus brings strength and support to the bruised reeds and the faint wicks like you and like me. He brings hope and healing. He brings restoration and growth. And as Jesus gives us this tender care, he also gives us great hope for our life's journey through this disordered and draining world. And he helps us see that he is, he is actually bringing justice, that he is actually bringing life-giving order. And one of the ways we see this is actually right here. When we look around at the church, when we see the, the people God has formed, the people that he is making, the community he is establishing and building up, we can see that he is actually bringing life. He is actually bringing order as we learn to love and to care for one another. Now, I'll be the first to tell you from my own actions that that work is not complete. <laughs> you know it and I know it, and yet, it is inescapable the way he is at work among his people. You cannot spend time among his community and miss the fact that he is bringing life. In addition to this, we can also look at our own hearts. We can look at our disordered hearts and see how he is actually beginning to bring order. I'll never forget, there was a, a young man I worked with when I was in high school, and we would talk about faith and we would talk about Christianity, and he was interested but, but wasn't quite buying it. You may have heard me tell this story before. And a number of years later, when I came home to visit, my mom told me that she had had a conversation with this guy. He was still working locally in the town. And she said, you will never believe what he said to me. He said, Mrs. Martin, in the last few years, uh, I actually became a Christian. And the Lord has been doing things in my life. He has been, he didn't say this, but he basically was describing how the Lord had been bringing order into his life and doing things that he never imagined were possible. Jesus is at work. He is bringing order among his people. And he is teaching us to seek the well-being, the prosperity of our neighbors so that they can flourish. And as he does this work, though it is not complete, he does it with the great hope, with the great promise that one day it will be brought to completion. That one day this, this society, this environment will be fully and perfectly established. 
And these are rich and beautiful reasons for why God wants us to see his servant so clearly. He wants us to see him clearly so that we will place all of our trust and hope in him and in him alone. Now I said alone, in him alone, and I said it for a reason. Because in this disordered and draining world, our vision often gets disordered. It gets miscalibrated. And we easily have wandering eyes that go and look at other things that we will place our hope and our trust in. This was true of the people of Israel to who this was originally written, and it is true of us as well. And God actually, before he says, behold, my servant, earlier in this, in, in this book, he says, behold, I want you to see something else. And we see in uh, chapter 41, verse 24, what he says. He says, behold, you idols. He's talking about idols here. He says, behold, you idols are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. He says it again in verse 29 of chapter 41. Behold, idols are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And he says, behold, behold the worthlessness of these idols because these are things that we see and so easily place our hope and trust in besides the one true God. And we all do it. And we do it in all kinds of different ways. Some of us do it with money and possessions. We think, if I can only have fill in the blank, then I'll be okay. Or we may do it with relationships. We may say, if I could only earn the favor of fill in the name, then they will take care of me. And some of us may do it in our own lives. We may look to ourselves in, a, in an idolatrous way, thinking if I can just get life right, if I can just perform to a certain level, if I can only achieve, then, then it's going to be all right. Then I will know that I will flourish. Now, many of these things are not bad in themselves. In fact, they are good. Relationships, seeking to do good work, seeking to perform well, these are all good things. The problem arises when we turn these things into idols when we turn from trusting in God and rather than receiving them as gifts from God, we begin to serve them as God and trust them as God. And the Lord calls for his people in these passages to see that no matter what promises these idols promise us, no matter what we're leaning on them for, they are all worthless. They will fail. They will snap like a broken reed. We will never find the true life that we are looking for among them. And this is why, this is why we need to see what else the Lord's servant Jesus has come to do. Look with me in verse six. There he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Friends, Jesus comes to open our eyes. He comes to open our eyes so that we can see clearly that our idols are worthless. And to be led out of the dark dungeon of the sinful idolatry so that we can see and believe that God and God alone is our only hope. That he is our only savior. The only one who will bring justice. The only one who will bring order and flourishing to our lives. And this is what he says in verse 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He is the only one that we are to see as God. And Jesus makes it possible for us to see and believe these things. 
Jesus makes it possible by performing the greatest act of service in the history of the world. The one who strengthens and supports the bruised reed, he allows himself to be crushed on the cross to pay for every time we have ever looked to an idol, for every time we have hoped or trusted or worshipped anything but God. Jesus, the gentle service, pays the price and dies on the cross and rises again so that he can then come to us in our darkness and open our eyes so that we can see clearly what it is, who it is that we need. So my, my question for you, Christian, this morning is, are you trusting in God alone? Or do you find yourself drifting back to worthless, empty idols? And if you find yourself drifting, here's what I would, here's what I exhort you to do. Ask, ask our gentle, loving Savior, the one who gave his life for you, ask him to strengthen your faith. Ask him to give you renewed vision, to lead you to renewed repentance and to turn you back to obedience to the Lord, to trusting in him alone, and, and he will do it because he wants to bring order into your life, and he will also do it kindly because he is gentle and because he loves you. And for any who may be here today who do not yet trust Jesus, I ask the same question for you. Where are you looking for order in your life? Are you seeking to rule over your own life? Are, are you hoping that a human relationship will help you to thrive? Or, or a certain social status will cause you to prosper? My friend, I hope that as you have seen these, these true words this morning, that you would behold, that you would see that whatever it is you're looking to that is not God, that these things are worthless, that they cannot give you what it is you're seeking. And I also hope that you will behold and see Jesus for who he truly is. That he is not just a, a nice name that we put on a Christmas card, but that he is the one who actually will deliver what it is you are looking for. He is the one who will lead you into true and abundant life under the good rule of our God. And it is because he, he brings us into relationship with God. That is why we can have, actually have confidence that all these things are true. Because let's be, let's be honest. When we look around at the world, it, it looks pretty chaotic. I don't know if you've ever heard this expression, but sometimes, you know, a house can become so disordered, you're just like, you know what, why don't we just toss a match and, like, walk out the front door? <laughs> you know, and we'll just start over. It can feel that bad. The disorder, the draining, it can feel like, how could anyone ever bring order out of all that we see here? And the only thing that gives us hope is that this servant will be successful. Did you hear that as we read the passage, how over and over and over again it calls us to look and see not only what he's doing, not only his mission, but that he's actually been called to do it? Because we, we've seen, uh, I, I don't know if, if any of you guys like Army-Navy game, but, you know, our quarterback was, is called to help us win the game, and there's been several times where I was like, ooh, I don't know if he's going to accomplish his mission. <laughs> and that's not jamming on him. Like, that's, that's on all of us, right? But here's the deal. Jesus, he's not only called to accomplish this mission, he is actually guaranteed that he will be successful, that he will victoriously establish justice. And we see this in verse 4. It says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. He's not going to quit. He's not going to fail. He will achieve his mission. And why? Look in verse 1. The Lord says, behold my servant whom I uphold. We are told that as the servant goes about his mission, that he is loved by and enjoys the support and strength of God. 
In verse 5, we see it again. He says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Friends, the God who created all things, the God who gives us our very breath and life, He has the power to do all that He has promised the servant. And we actually get to witness this power and be reminded of it in amazing ways right here in Roanoke. Whenever we drive down the the Blue Ridge Parkway, or if you ever go up to one of the high points that overlooks this beautiful valley where we have the privilege to live, you see on full display the amazing splendor and power of our Creator God. And when you drive that parkway and when you look into that valley, you can see that and not only appreciate the beauty of it, but be reminded that the powerful one who did all of this, who made all of these things, that he is going to use that power to accomplish what he has sent his servant Jesus to accomplish. Nothing will stop him. And we see it again in verse 6. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. It is God, the one living and true God, the almighty creator who has made these promises and who has the power to bring them to completion. And as we, we see these things that the servant has set out to accomplish, uh, the certainty with which he will do them, we may actually find ourselves a little bit uncertain of how to respond. Have you ever, you ever met like a famous celebrity or, or someone you'd heard about and you're like, hey, you're going to meet this person. You're like, okay, this is what I'm going to say to them. And you get up to them, you're like, ah, <laughs> what's my name again? You know, like it can be, it can be astounding. We, when we're in the face of such majesty, when we're in the face of such power and of such goodness, we can be at a loss for words at times. But Isaiah actually finishes by helping us, by kind of taking us by the hand and leading us into how can we respond to all that God is doing. And we see it in verse 10. As he has recounted what we see the servant doing, he says, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. As he recounts what the Lord is doing, he bursts forth in songs of praise. And he invites the entire earth to join with him. And friends, that, that means you, and that means me. And my prayer is that all of us, every time we consider the work of Jesus, whether it's this coming weekend, on Christmas morning, or a warm summer day, my prayer is that our hopes, our hearts would be filled with joy, that it would be filled with wonder that leads us to glorify God for all that he has done and for all that he is continuing to do. And that Christmas would not be simply a time of of beautiful decorations, though it is that. That it would not just be the amassing of gifts and presents, although those are good. I'm looking forward to giving and receiving some myself. But that, that Christmas would be a time where true and lasting joy is tasted, where it is remembered as we remember the greatest gift that the Lord has given, His Son, His servant, who brings true order to our lives. And may we be ambassadors of this good news. May we go into a dark world with the light of the good news of Jesus that they too would see and believe in him and join us in our song of praise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all that you are and for all that you do. You are a mighty creator, God, and you use that mighty power for our good, for our blessing. You send your servant to bring order, to bring justice into our lives. And you send him to care for us with gentleness. Though we are weak and feeble, you do not despise us, but you are tender with us. You care for us. 
And we thank you for this, Lord. And we ask that these truths would sink deeply into our hearts, that as we celebrate Christmas this year and throughout the year, that we would not be able to help but truly, from a heart of, of deep conviction and joy, sing praise to you. That it would not be uh, empty words, but that they would be full of life because of the life and the joy you have given us in Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.